Hey folks, it's Mike from Profiling Evil. I've been studying criminal behavior for more than 40 years, and one of my favorite research tools is Truthfinder. It's online, and you're not going to believe the information stored there. So if you want to know more about that new neighbor, your babysitter, or your online date, give Truthfinder a try. I'm including a special link below with special discount pricing, but you got to click the link and enter Evil 10 at checkout. Now, we're an affiliate, which means we get a small commission, but you can cancel at any time. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to Profiling Evil Live and Choir Practice. Can you believe it? After two years, we're bringing this thing back, and we're bringing it back, frankly, because a whole bunch of you just kept asking why we're not holding it. So thanks so much. I'm Mike King, and it's really a pleasure to be with you. I want to shout out to Don Marie and our other mods. Thanks so much for taking care of things. And and to all of you that are pouring in, thanks so much uh, for being with us. I think we're going to have a pretty amazing night tonight. And for the first 200 people that are in here, your job tonight is anybody else that says, what's choir practice? You're going to need to uh, fill them in on it, especially those of you who have been around for a long time doing this. Here's, Here's what choir practice is. If you remember Joseph Wambaugh, the author, this is something that that originated back in 1975 with a novel that Joseph Wambaugh wrote called The Choir Boys. If you haven't read it, it's still, I think, considered one of the top 10 true crime novels out there. So they they euphemistically called their after-shift get-togethers choir practice, a group. It actually in the novel is a group of 10 rookie officers who are starting to figure out what law enforcement is all about. And when they would get together in these little get-togethers, usually either in a park in the Wilshire district of Los Angeles or in a bar, it's there they'd, uh, some would consume drinks and others would just come to share their war stories, talk about traumatic events that happened during their shift. And of course, how can you do any of that without also complaining about your patrol sergeant or your other bosses? So that's choir practice. It started as a topic or a idea in a novel, but it has internationally become a piece of police lingo. So there you go. You've got it. That's choir practice. And uh, we're going to have some fun with it. Choir practice is a whole bunch of just different stuff. And uh, so to all of you, thanks. Monty, your first choir practice. I don't know what to expect. You're you're absolutely right. You won't know until you're you're there. It uh, looks like my in-house counsel's here. Michelle Morris, thanks so much. Glad to have you here. Sorry that uh, the playoffs aren't working the way you wanted them to. And I'm going to just jump right in and bring in my guest that I am so excited to have with me. I want to bring in uh, Melanie Little. And many of you have listened to Melanie. How are you doing, Mel? I'm doing great, Mike. Happy New Year. Well, Happy New Year to you. Thanks so much for doing this. I, as You know, it's, it's like 10 o'clock after 10 now. Uh, I, I turned into a pumpkin around 9, so I'm really impressed because you're always doing these late night uh, broadcasts. I am a night owl, Mike, and I have so many kids that it's the only time I get to myself. So if I go live at 11 p.m., everybody's kind of 
settled and, you know, all of the, the hubbub in the house has kind of settled down. So uh, that's a good time for me. This is a great time for me. So our <laughs> well, time that's... difference works out. <laughs> now, did you know what choir practice was? Um, I've been doing vocal exercises all day, so I wish you would have told me that because I'm ready to give you my old Lang Syne. Uh, no, actually, I'm not. But no, I didn't know what it was, and I'm happy to be here. Well, now you know. And and yeah, I mean, it, I remember as a rookie cop, of course, uh, I started in 1979 uh, in my law enforcement career, but choir practice was a normal thing. It had about four years of people kind of getting used to it. And because I don't drink, I was always the designated driver after choir practice. So everybody loved having me go with them because uh, they had someone that they knew would uh, be able to drive them home. But it was so fun because you got to hear the old cops talk about things from an experiential level. You got to hear the young cops with the big wide eyes talking about the first dead body they walked up on or something like that. And, and, uh, those memories uh, never leave. But folks, I want you to get to know Melanie Little, who spent a 25-year career doing civil cases. Mel, did you ever do any prosecution or did you ever want to do any prosecution or defense work? No, I think I just I just went right into civil litigation. I um, That was my calling. That was my wheelhouse. I was the voice for people who couldn't speak for themselves. So I always handle cases like the Maya Kowalski case. You know, in cases like that, where I was fighting for victims and survivors and that in the civil arena, kind of like um, a lot of the cases that we're seeing come out and become a little bit more popular now. It's not just the criminal trials that we're following anymore. Yeah. Um, and you talked about about Maya. I, uh, I, I really enjoyed uh, following along with some of your commentary on that. And of course, I covered early on a lot of things from a behavioral perspective that I think came out during the trial in particular. But uh, I, I think, uh, did that case turn out the way that you thought it would with that huge settlement? There's no settlement yet, actually. There was a $261 million verdict, and we are now in post-trial motion apocalypse, pretty much. So and nothing has been paid, hasn't been settled. Um did I think the verdict would be as large as it was? I think after hearing all the testimony, and I really did listen to all the testimony, uh, I think uh, I knew the defendant was in some trouble. But there's been a lot of shenanigans, so it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. That was so maddening to me, and I, I expressed a couple of times on the two or three videos that I did how angry I was that this child wasn't allowed to see her parents and and have contact at such a critical moment in and obviously, it led to her mother committing suicide. Yeah, that that was the, I thought, the hardest part of the case um, to prove that there was a connection there. Uh, and it's a case of first impression. This is the first time that a defendant has been held, libely, uh, held liable civilly, really, for a suicide. But, you know, based on all the testimony, we listened to it for nine weeks. There was a lot there. And it was this. I think the scariest part of that case was finding out that you could lose your parental rights. You could have your parental rights stripped within a week based on a false allegation, uh, because the mother was falsely accused of having Munchausen by proxy by um, a doctor. <laughs> so it's it's an interesting case, and we'll see where it goes. 
Yeah, you know, um, I, I just saw a, a quick comment that popped up. Mm-hmm. Uh, where do the funds actually come from when people have no money personally? And I think that question's more about like the doctors that were personally looked at and the difference between that and this medical facility that will bear much of the burden. What are your thoughts there? Well, uh, everyone's got insurance. So, you know, when I would handle cases like this, I would settle for the policy limits of the insurance. I would never go after defendants personally. So that is something that in this case, I think it's going to be handled mostly by an insurance company. There may be a self-insured retention portion that the hospital would be on the hook for, but I don't really know the the details of that. But yeah, typically, you know, cases like this, they have insurance. Um, so I want to switch gears a little bit. Uh, part, part of, uh, your background, I think that's one of the things that really uh, struck a chord with me is the work you did in defense of the victims of ritual abuse and abuse under under the clergy. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, my, a personal friend of mine is Gemma Hoskins, who is from The Keepers, if you watch the movie mm-hmm. The Keepers on Netflix. Yeah. And she has um, championed Sister Catherine's death and murder for many, many decades and continues to do so. But why don't you share a little bit about that experience? Yes, though, I was, uh, I still am a New York State trial attorney. I've been an attorney for 30 years now. And in 2002, I'm, I'm Long Island, born and bred from New York. And in 2002 is when the Catholic Church scandal broke. And there was a grand jury convened in Suffolk County, Long Island, to investigate all of the allegations of clergy sex abuse against the Roman Catholic diocese here on Long Island. And the grand jury issued a scathing 180-page report. They interviewed 97 witnesses, and nobody was prosecuted criminally because of it, because the statute of limitations had expired. But there were many, many priests who were accused of abusing children, including, including some that were very high up. And we uncovered we uncovered a policy that was was developed by the diocese to handle these cases and what to do when the moms would come into the rectory complaining about a priest abusing her child and how to keep them quiet and how to tell them they were going to handle it in-house. So there was so much fraud and shuffling involved in these cases that we thought that civilly we could overcome the statute of limitations by using fraud as a cause of action. But these cases went all the way up to the highest court in New York. I had about 50 or 60 clients who were victims, men and women of uh, abuse, mostly when they were children, um, you know, aged 15 and under. And the cases went all the way up to the highest court in New York and were thrown out on statute of limitations. So it was a very long, very difficult fight. Um, And the movie Spotlight was made as a result of this scandal so a lot of people that are familiar with that movie may know exactly what I'm talking about. That uh, That is a really tough um, situation when you're trying to build a case on these really cold cases. In fact, I, t- I uh, talked about a case right now where another YouTuber, and I think I've talked to you about this, um, was uh, is in the court for serious sexual crimes, rape of a child. It's a 30-plus-year-old case. And one of the things I talked about on my video was my experience during the satanic panic era 
you know, my team in the attorney general's office, we investigated probably 300 plus cases that were bona fide cases coming up from local law enforcement where they had interviewed and felt like there was something to the case. And out of all of those, we only had one that we were able to ever substantiate with some other form of evidence than a memory or um, a person, a single person's testimony, usually the victim. And uh, these are so terrible because you, you believe the victim and you certainly believe that the victim believes what happened happened, but putting something together that's decades old is just a nightmare for a prosecution. Well, in yeah, in criminal cases, yeah, but you know the statute of limitations here in New York was so short that the architects of this policy knew how long to keep people quiet before they could bring a case, and then they knew that they would never go to jail and they would never be sued. So um, eventually New York did change the law and they opened a one-year statute of limitations to bring all civil cases that are old. And that's why you're seeing a lot of these cases drop with right around Thanksgiving because that's when the one-year window expired. So there were cases against, um, I think, Sean Combs and some other celebrities that dropped that were decades old. And uh, that's because that one-year window closed. So it took years of lobbying um, to get it was called the Adult Survivors Victims Act. And there was also a Child Victims Act that eventually passed. But, you know, that's unfortunately, that's how most of these cases are. There's not DNA. It's 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 the survivor or the victim's word against the perpetrator because the nature of that crime is such that so many people don't disclose ever. And when they finally do disclose, often it's after the statute of limitations expired. So that's the problem with trying to to prosecute these cases or to even civilly handle these cases. You you know, I I spent much of my career doing nothing but cold cases. And and one of my personal um, watermarks was always to have more than one form of evidence before I ever walked into a prosecutor because that is so difficult and and you don't have the benefit of forensics 30 years later. We don't have cell phone data that we can take digital forensics or other kinds of things. And, uh, and it just creates a nightmare. Uh, folks, I'm talking to Melanie Little, an attorney and a great new podcaster. Uh, I've got her link down below. So make sure you go over and check out her channel and please subscribe. And I'll try to ask questions as you come up. But uh, Deb Jackson just reminded me here that if you I, I don't think I'm begging you for money, but when you when you donate some money, it changes color on the screen and makes your question really stand out. So uh, it's great to see you too, Deb, and thank you. And and Melanie, it's just such a pleasure to have you here. We met through Duty Ron. Uh, I've been on your show and we have talked, whether it's been talking about uh, football in Colorado or or serial killers in Long Island, we have uh, really enjoyed a great relationship over the last year. So thanks again for being here. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Love it. Love it. Love being here. Go Buffs, so, by the way. There's my song. I, thought, I thought it might be kind of fun. Uh, one of the things we were going to try to do, uh, I, I retired four weeks ago, but I used to come to New York to my office there many, many times. I haven't told you and really haven't said much about it, but I retired on December 1st, left the next day for Europe and spent the month in Europe and 
and now I'm back in the saddle and, and, uh, um, but one of the road trips we were going to do is load you and Ron and me in a car. We were going to get Ed if he was in town and we were going to, um, drink diet Cokes and, and spit sunflower seeds and go check out Long Island. We were going to go past the locations where many of the victims have been recovered in the Long Island serial killer case. We were, we're going to drive by Rex Hearman's house, mm-hmm. but you've been going to court on this one. So why don't you tell us a little bit about where you think things are in this case? And, uh, and then I'm going to share something with you that uh, actually I built uh, about eight years ago when I was doing a special called the killing fields for a and E that dealt with the Long Island killings long before we ever knew who Rex Hearman was. Well, that I can't wait to hear about that. Yeah. Congratulations on your retirement. That's amazing. Good for you. I bet your wife's real happy to have you around all the time. Well, I don't know. She's telling me I need to go TDY and and, uh, she's not ready for me to be hanging around the house that much. You need to start playing golf maybe or pickleball or something. (laughs) We'll see what happens. Well, yeah, this, you know, this Long Island serial killer case is such a personal case for me because like I said, I'm born and bred Long Island. I was a young lawyer and a young mom with two little kids when the first pair of legs washed up on Fire Island in 1996. And these were the beaches that I would take my kids to. So Long Island has been terrorized by body parts washing up since at least 1996. And then torsos were found and skulls were found. And then the Gilgo Four were found all the way 16 years later or 14 years later in 2010. The Gilgo Four, the four bodies on Gilgo Beach were um, were found. And since that time, you know, we've been scared to go to the beach. It's been a very, very um, traumatizing event for those of us here on Long Island. And there was a lot of, uh, I'm just going to say, it, I know you're long, but there's, there was a lot of corruption in Suffolk County and the police department. And there was a lot of reasons that Rex Hearman was never arrested. They had a description of him all the way back in 2010. It kind of got buried in a case file. And there was a lot of other things and a lot of other players who wound up going to jail. And there was reasons why it wasn't looked into. So when this arrest finally happened, you know, in 2023, this was a huge moment for the people of Long Island. Like this, it's crazy that they finally got this guy and that he was still living in the same house in Massapequa Park, Long Island, that he still had the vehicle in the family that he may have transported some of these women in. And I've been to court on this. This is a local case for me. New York does not allow cameras in the courtroom. So when this case goes to trial, eventually I will be boots on the ground, Long Island. For this case, I've been to court. He looked me right in the eye. He turned around and looked right at me. And that was incredibly chilling to have a serial killer look me in the eye. I know that you've probably had that before, but I never had. And, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens with this case, whether they can connect him some more, with some more bodies. There were, he's he's indicted for three of the Gilgo Four, and there are a lot of other bodies and body parts in the same location that we're waiting. There are, um, in fact, I'm, I'm going to, and uh, w- when you're in that courtroom, I'm going to have you just dial in each night and we'll just go live for a minute and sure. talk about those. But uh, what I'm going to put up here is, is uh, folks, those of you who are used to the Profiling Evil website, it's just profilingevil.com. Um, when you go in there, and by the way, there's some pretty cool things on there. There's a place where you can order books. There's a great new survey right now that's been really interesting. I just put it up a couple of days ago, but it's a place, Melanie, where people can go in and, and say whether they agreed with or disagree with tearing that house down 
in the Moscow murder investigation. So it's a place where they could go in and explore the map and see what people from all over the world have been saying as they've weighed in on this thing. And it's kind of fun to to see the map just slowly growing with more and more content. Uh, when they go in and click on that link, there's a link to go to a survey so they can take advantage of the, and do the survey themselves and walk through that and and uh, level what their opinions are about it. But as you scroll down, of course, here here we got uh, you and Vinny, who's on, uh, going to be coming in here in a second. Uh, but uh, we have a section that I call story maps, and these are really cool maps where you can go in and uh, explore cases um, just a little bit differently. So um, I'm going to just scroll down to the, uh, let's see here. Oh, I don't want to just show this particular story map. I'm going to come back to that because I have a story map that is just uh, on Rex Hurman, and it covers all of those bodies going back to the pre-1990s when bodies were starting to wash up on shore. And and uh, it was that time period. I talk a little bit from a, a profiling perspective about the differences in behavior, about some of those body parts and whether they might have uh, been displaced by tidal influences and other kinds of things. And, and I talk about Long Island being more a serial location than a serial killer's landing spot because I think there are some different personalities and different behaviors in some of these different crimes. We'll come back to that in a minute, but I want to jump because uh, I got Vinnie Politan here and, and I want to bring him in. It's a little bit earlier than he was planning. I'm going to see if he gives me a thumbs up if he's ready here. And uh, we're going to just have some fun and bring him in on, in on the discussion. Vinnie, how you doing tonight? Happy New Year. <laughs> Happy New Year to you. Meet uh, Melanie Little, an attorney out of Long Island. So you guys probably crossed each other in Midtown at some point. <laughs> but, maybe, uh, maybe. Uh, we were on the other side of the George Washington Bridge where I prosecuted in Bergen. So it's possible. Yeah, you're a Jersey boy. But she was probably only like 12 years old at the time. That's the difference. Uh, pretty sure we're contemporaries, Vinny. I've been watching you for at least 20 years, but thank you. <laughs> hey, hey, Vinny, we're, we're talking about some of these cases. And Long Island just comes up because it's such a an amazing case. It's so complex. Melanie actually lives out on Long Island, and she's been over, and she sat in in court and uh, uh, w- w- listened as that case was put together, heard uh, Herman on a few occasions. I can't, I hope, I don't know if she ran into Matt Johnson there or whatever, but, uh, she's been there. What do you, what do you think is the big issues with the Long Island serial killer case at this point, particularly with, uh, with Rex Herman? I, I think it's a couple of things. One, like where, where did the murders take place? Like where, where did they happen? Uh, that question has not been answered. And, and I don't know if there will be an answer for that question. We don't necessarily know. Um, obviously, the killer knows. Does anyone else know? Was there anyone else nearby or um, um, anyone else have any information relative to that? I think that's going to be a big, big issue in the case. Um, obviously, they've got DNA connecting him somewhat to the to the bodies, and they're going to put together all the other pieces of information that they have, which seem very compelling from what we've heard so far. But we know once you get inside a courtroom and you have two sides and you have one side painting the one picture, the other side coming up with the alternatives and what isn't there, 
Um, I think it'll raise some questions. I don't think it's enough for reasonable doubt, but uh, I think for the trial it's, itself and for the case and the investigation, right? Where did these murders take place? Was it one location, different locations? Uh, I, I just don't know. You know, that that's really interesting. And I'm, I'm going to bring this up. I was talking about it earlier. It took me a minute to get back to it. But uh, that's one of the things I covered in this story map that I created. And of course, uh, Melanie Vinny's like, it's like ad nauseum when he talks to me because I like bring up a map and say, hey, well, let's look at it this way or that way. But he, here are those bodies and different events that are occurring out in Long Island. And it gets it gets pretty amazing when you start looking at them individually and and look at the time frames on each of them but this story map and I, i'm not going to spend any time on it other than to say i hope people will go through and look at it because i start back in 2010 when those bodies were recovered and i i go through each of those with a little snippet it's more to drive people down the rabbit hole than anything else. And then I look at things from a two-dimensional way or a three-dimensional way. So like Shannon Gilbert and the issues about whether she really is a Long Island serial killer victim or was a victim of another killer or whatever. I go in and I spend a little time and I look at those locations where she traveled that morning when she was making those 911 calls and then where her body ends up when it's all said and done. And so this will be kind of a, for people that are interested in Long Island, um, a place where they can go in. It, it includes some of the wild stuff, like when all of a sudden there was a new new victim with Julianne Bean down in uh, North, South Carolina and talks a little bit about those. But you can go through the arrests and the victims in 2010, the victims in 2011, and explore those uh, and and on and on. I'm going to now quit yammering and I'm going to listen to the two of you for a moment. I'm so impressed with your technology, Mike. I'm just kind of blown away by it. I see people in the stream saying you invited both of us on because we all have blue eyes. Was that a consideration? Oh, you well, to you too, Mike. I have hazel eyes well, they look and blue really bloodshot usually. But <laughs> Shannon Gilbert to me is still big. I mean, that's what started the whole thing, right? It was the search for yeah. Shannon Gilbert, yet. So what exactly happened to her? And with, there's so much more information related to her because you have the phone calls and you have these different locations and you have more information about what was going on in her life versus some of the other uh, victims in the case. Yet that one still seems to be somewhat of a mystery. Well, they're claiming it was an accident, but I mean, so many people think it wasn't. And like you were saying, Vinny, like where were these bodies, where were these people killed? You know, like if they went out looking for Shannon Gilbert and she turned up where she did, which was feet away from the house she went missing from, why couldn't they find her back then? Why did it take them right. a year to find her body? Like, did they keep her somewhere and then put her back? And I say them because she's saying in the 911 call, they're trying to kill me. They're trying to kill me. Um, yeah. It's interesting. I I, uh, I think Shannon Gilbert, I mean, that case, like you say, is the one that really brought all of these victims to the light. And uh, when when her case came out, one of the things I think has been interesting, you might know her, uh, uh, the attorney for the Gilbert family, Melanie, um, mm -hmm. but he's been really aggressive and really out there. But the thing I've been so impressed with is it's kept Shannon Gilbert out there and kept her case in the limelight. And how do you complain about that? 
I'm most impressed with with his sartorial splendor, quite frankly. John Ray is who we're talking about here, I assume. Um, and he's been working for free. Look, for 13 years, nobody's been more loud than he has about this case. And I give him a lot of credit for that. Yeah. Thoughts on that one, Vinny? Well, I've had him on a bunch of times. And every time I have him on, it's like, whoa, whoa. Oh, my. Wow. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Say, slow down, John. Slow down. Tell me that again. Um, and then the, the latest was the where he's tracking down these witnesses who were part of these sexual parties and the trapeze club and ads that are put up and the uh, accused killer's wife is in. I mean, it's like, wow, like, w- what is going on here? And why is he digging stuff up and nobody else necessarily is? I, I don't. I don't know. And I don't know what the truth is. Like some of these people came forward like recently. Why didn't they come forward like many years ago? Because all these stories were kind of in the news, like big time before, but they didn't come forward. And and what messes up everything as, as a prosecutor is it's going to be an ugly prosecution because of the the trouble with police and, and the original investigators in the case. Mm-hmm. And that becomes a whole sideshow. And depending upon what the judge allows and what the judge doesn't allow, um, that's a huge tangent that people can go off on during this trial. It can be a distraction. And my fear is anytime there's a distraction uh, in, in the courtroom and the, and the focus is somehow shifted away from the defendant at the defendant's table, you know, with the evidence that's pointing there and there's other things going on here, it just it, it creates potential pitfalls and problems during the course of trying to prove something beyond any and all reasonable doubt. So um, those are the other concerns with the case. I have an answer for you on why these witnesses didn't come forward 20 years ago or 10 years ago. Nobody knew who Kierman was. These are witnesses who were coming forward and saying, I was the one who from La Trapeze is saying, I went to Kierman's house, right? So we didn't know who Kierman was. Nobody had a picture of this guy until six months ago. But they also said they saw one of the victims there. And that's I think, how, that's but Karen was. Vergata was not identified until a couple of months ago. Yeah, her legs I, washed I, up in '96. The rest of her body was, but she was never identified until a couple of months ago. Well, there's, well, there's two different. There's, uh, again, every time Giant Ray's on, there's a couple of different stories going right, on. Right. So there's the 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 sex party at the house, but then there was the thing at the motel with the truck and 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 the. The cab I don't driver. know. Is he the 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 pimp or what? I don't know what what was going on there. But there was there was another, and that involved Shannon Gilbert directly, and she obviously has been in the news on yeah. this for years and years and years. And you had people coming forward on that as well. So um, there, there's a, there's a lot out there, and you know we'll see. Now every time I have on the attorneys for the family. Uh, the wife and the kids, um, and they they seem they, they, Johnny Ray is looking for some civil case is what they what they're going for is is, is he trying to dig up some stuff um, that will help his clients and potentially him through some civil litigation and lawsuit to go after someone for something right so. Mm-hmm. They always attack his credibility through through that. And, you know, I, I take it all in and try to weigh it and figure out because 
Um, what exactly is, is the truth is what I'm most concerned with, right? Mm -hmm. Ultimately is, is what is the truth? So when you hear all these conflicting stories and accounts and witnesses, um, I always take a look at everything available and say, all right, well, who's saying what and why are they saying it? Uh, but the first thing I want to understand is exactly how deep were the original investigators involved in some really strange sexual behavior? And to me, that's, I don't have the clearest answer on that still after all these years. Like they got jammed up for some other stuff. But mm -hmm. what else was going on there? Because there was some weird stuff going on with that chief. Weird. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's that's an agency that's been plagued with problems that are going to continue to haunt this case. I think it, it's, it, it started early on and it's continued through. And even as recently as seeing even more arrests, I think as, as late on some of those uh, leaders. Hey folks, I got Vinnie Politan from court TV here with, uh, with me tonight. And of course, Melanie little, uh, a, a longtime attorney and uh, now podcaster, and you got to make sure you hit her state. Her, now, when you uh, say long time attorney, let's put it all in perspective now. Like oh. long time, but like, I mean, is she like Doogie Hauser? She started like 30 like, years, Vinny, really? like 30 years. Can you yeah. believe that, Vinny? I, I don't believe it. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, uh, it's true. But thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you guys. Uh, it's, it's a good ring light is what it is. I, I mean, it's shocking. It is shocking. Anyhow. Well, the light must certainly be better there than in my, in my <laughs> office. That's all I've got to say. Like, I can hey, see folks. you've been doing stuff for 30 years, Mike. Like, I could see that. And I've been doing stuff for 30 years. But, like, <laughs> I have the same problem on my show all the time. And I bring in the, you know, the think tank and stuff. And these, you know, I'm like, you've been doing it that long? Really? Like, what, 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 what's going on? Like, there's something good in the water. That Long Island water, I guess. <laughs> Except well, for the body parts. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you what. Talk, talking about helpful? Court TV, it is. Uh, it has been an absolute pleasure for me the last two plus years to be able to come on regularly and and uh, and sit down with you, Vinny. And of course, we've had some fun even off the camera and other places that, that have been really remarkable to to just share and get to know you better. But why don't you give people a kind of a sense of what you're kind of up, what's up the sleeve for 2024? Well, there's a lot. Well, first, um, they just did a marathon today of, of my other show, Accomplice to Murder, which is the show that's not live. This is the one where we investigate old cases that older cases that we've covered on court TV. But we take a look at them a little bit differently. We take a look at the accomplice to the case, not the main person who everyone was focused on and get into the how they even got involved in this murder. You know, it's like someone who has no motive to commit a murder gets involved. Like, how does that happen? What happened to the person at trial? And what has happened since the trial to that person? Fascinating story. So we got greenlit for season two. So we, we started uh, filming those episodes. So we're going to have 12 new episodes coming up later in 2024. So that's pretty exciting. And then, you know, still every night live from eight to 10, um, with closing arguments, but um, looking at what's on the docket for Court TV in 2024, some of the potential trials, all subject to delays, as we know, um, in the business. But, you know, you've got the Delphi murders, that trial, you've got the Idaho students, Chad Daybell with a camera. Uh, there'll be a camera for the Idaho students as well. 
Um, Murdoch is trying to get a new trial. There's a huge hearing on that that's coming up early in the year. Um, Gabby Petito. Gabby Petito has a civil suit, her family suing the laundries. And this is a spite suit. This is going to, I mean, you're, this is going to get ugly inside the courtroom because the Petitos want to expose the laundries for what they knew and what they did. Um, it's, it's a fascinating civil case. No one's going to jail. Um, and I don't even think it's about money for the Petito family. It's about exposing and finally getting the truth and learning as much as they can about what happened to Gabby. Um, what else do we have? Oh, I, I made a quick list. So there's this case that we've been following. It's been delayed so many times, the suitcase murder trial. Now, I've covered cases with suitcases before, but it's usually the murder takes place, like Melanie McGuire, and then they they you know sever the body parts, put it in suitcases, and get rid of it. This time, the suitcase is the actual like murder weapon. It's nuts. Um, but the, what's more nuts than the case is is the defendant who's on like lawyer number seven, which is why we have to have this trial. But it's supposed to happen in 2024. We'll see. I, I, that's an amazing one. Uh, a couple of ones I just wanted to mention. Um, we've got the Black Swan murder. This is the first time I've ever had a ballerina slash swimsuit model on trial for murder down in Florida. She married a, a much older man. They fell in love and got married within a couple of weeks, which, you know, is what it is. You know, I don't question love, but as soon as she got pregnant, she accused him of trying to poison her and the baby. She moves to her mother's house in Florida. He follows her down there. They're trying to reconcile. They get into this ugly custody battle for this newborn. And then on the eve of a big hearing, um, she shoots him and kills him and is claiming self-defense. So that, that's a wild one. Maya Miliette, that she's never been found. Larry is supposed to be uh, tried this year. Um, Courtney Clenny, the OnlyFans model. I'm going through all of them because we got so many good ones. Corey Richens, we'll see when that happens. Out by you. Shanna Gardner, uh, the Jared Breidigan murder. Uh, Dan Markell, the FSU law professor. Donna Adelson, his former mother-in-law. Yeah, and that one's coming up. And I'm still sitting here waiting for Alec Baldwin to be charged. Everybody else gets charged except the guy who fires the gun. Explain that one to me. I'll tell you what. we And we actually talked a lot about that on the show and about that firing mechanism and that process uh, that is that is a really interesting one. How, how did he not get like everybody else is getting like charged? Everybody or nobody, right? I know it's an accident. No one intended uh, for this to happen. But the person who allegedly loaded the gun got charged. The person who handed the gun to Alec Baldwin got charged. But the guy who actually had the gun in his hand pointed it at the victims and squeezed the trigger has not been charged. Like, I don't understand that. And then I get lawyers on my show every night telling me that he shouldn't be charged. And I'm like, tell me some other person who can handle a weapon, not knowing whether or not it's loaded because they didn't check it or have it checked in front of them and can point a gun at someone, squeeze the trigger and not face, who else? Who else other than an actor? Who else other than an actor doesn't get charged for that? Crazy. Gets me fired up every time. <laughs> I don't get it. I don't get it. Like fire charge all of them or none of them. Like why does the person who actually 
squeeze the trigger, not get charged. I, I don't get it. I, it, it here, here's a question I got for you, Vinny. I, I go back to the days of Casey Anthony when you were actually sitting in the courtroom doing the reporting. Um, there, there's a there's a difference between being in the trench and then having to try to get it as enthusiastically as you do night after night. And I mean, it really is a blast to to sit there and answer questions with you. But tell me, would you rather be in the trenches or would you rather be where you are now going home every night? Well, that's the right. That's the yin and the yang. Well, the first thing is I want to be on TV as much as possible. So if you're out in the field, you're only you're you're not on as much. Um, if I could do the show on the road every night, that would be kind of cool, but it would, you know, only waiting. I still have one who's sort of at home right now, right? One child. But if I could take it on the road and then me and the missus go on the road to do the show, I think it'd be fun. It would be too expensive though. That's the problem. And it's not because I have an entourage, Mike, it's not, you know, I do my own makeup, do my own makeup. I do my own hair, which takes 30 seconds. Um, but I, you know, it's just the crew and it's like a whole thing. So I try to get out though, a couple times a year, like we got out for Murdoch last year. Um, we went out for Johnny Depp. So this upcoming year, I'm looking at this list and I'm like, there's another one I want to go to. I don't know if you've heard of, you've heard of this one too. Karen Reed. Yes. Yeah. This one, like, yeah. this case is it, it, like, I've, I've never seen anything like it where you've had is. Protests at the courthouse asking for an accused police killer to be freed. Like dozens and dozens of people, like marching, and then now they're arresting the protesters. They're all getting charged. Like it's, it's crazy. The the leader, the the podcaster leader, Turtle Boy, um, and the Turtle Riders. Those are his followers. So Turtle Boy's been charged. They're alleging that he's harassing witnesses, et cetera. Um, I don't know. Maybe he might get sued for, for defamation, for accusing people. But he's basically echoing what the defense is saying and what their case is going to be inside the courtroom. So I don't know. I, but I've never seen a case where they've tried to shut down the protests at the, at the courthouse this way. But I've never seen the protests kind of go this way. I've never seen anyone stand up for an, an accused police killer, right? Have you have you seen that? Like no, that's no. And another thing that I haven't seen, if, I don't know if you caught Turtle Boy's tweet today from jail. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think it was from jail. At least he said, I'm sitting in jail and said, I'm ramping up for the best year of my life. And I'm thinking, if I were, if I were in those shoes, I'd probably be thinking a little differently. But I'd like both your kind of weigh-in on – this impact that social media is having on these criminal cases. And and I don't want to talk about the good side of it because I think there's a lot of good that comes from airing these stories and asking the public to help solve a problem. What I'm interested in is your thought on what I see becoming more and more a defense strategy of we can't, uh, we can't go to trial because too much is being said and then, like we're seeing in Karen Reed, having people that come up in such a a uh, aggressive way and push that same narrative out. I'll start with you, Vinny. Oh, want me to go first? Okay. Um, I, I, I'm I'm a 
big believer in First Amendment, right? So I, I believe that people should be able to voice their opinions about whatever they want, right? The the So it gets tricky here, right? And, and I had Turtle Boy on my show, and this was before he was charged or indicted or arrested for any of the protests or alleged interference with, with witnesses. And on my show, I sort of, I, I, I kind of gave him some advice. I said, you got to, you got to, you got to you got to tone it down. I said, you can't get in people's faces. You can't, you know, I was trying to give him a little bit of a hint that this was going to go down a, the, the wrong road for him. Like if they continued, you know, going after specific people, like you can protest free Karen Reed, make your proclamation, say, what about this evidence? What about that evidence? But it seemed like they were specifically going after people. And this is, and this, but this, what I'm about to say applies to just about anyone because everyone's presumed innocent at a certain point, right? Like, and on my show, we talk about the evidence and what the evidence seems to prove. And we do it for people who've been charged all the time, right? Whether it's a podcaster, me on television, my guests, um, anywhere, people will talk about, well, the evidence and it looks really you know, bad and this person looks guilty because of X, Y, and Z. And... What's happening here is it's happening for the other side. And I'm like, and the prosecutor put out this video saying, these witnesses are presumed innocent, you know, just like the defendant. But the defendant had, you know, was in court, was handcuffed, all of that. So I don't see a negative side to it. I just, I just see it as the airing of whatever evidence is out there. And it's, it's going to be up to the lawyers to figure it out in the courtroom and prove their case. I think you can always find 12 people. We found 12 people in OJ. There's never been a bigger case in modern uh, you know, yeah. jurisprudence. We found 12 people there. He was found not guilty. So, and, and, and the public at large thought he was guilty. So you know, it is what I believe our system works. Um, but you just can't defame people. You can't defame people. And, and even criminal defendants. Until they're proven guilty, you know they're alleged. The evidence shows this. The evidence shows that. But you can't sit there and say this person did it. And I, and I think that's that's the danger is when we cross over into the world of defamation and people who are podcasters or people making comments uh, or people just posting on their own thing have to understand that when you say something in public and you accuse someone of doing something terrible. And it somehow damages them. And it's not true. That's a problem. It's not just me on television. It's anyone on social media could be part of, of all of this. Um, I'm just a little, I really want to see where this all ends up with criminally charging these protesters. And, and what I don't like, it's a case where the allegation by the defense is a conspiracy by the state, Right. And now all of a sudden, the people who are yelling there's a conspiracy by the state are now also being charged by the state. That's not gonna that's not gonna create more public trust. It's gonna create less public trust. And that that's that's you know, if they broke the law, they broke the law. We'll see, you know, how their cases develop. But um, I think that's the other danger from the other side of all of this. But I'm big on the First Amendment, so it's hard for me to tell anyone to shut up. And all I do is talk, as you've noticed. <laughs> Melanie, what are your thoughts? Oh, I don't know. How much time do we have for this? I would love to go toe-to-toe with you, Vinny, on Karen Reed, because, yes, there's a cop killer. But 
I don't even want to get into this right now because we don't have enough time. There definitely is a cop killer. I, I'm not that convinced that it was Karen Reed. Um, and, and when they start arresting people like Turtle Boy, he's doing 90 days right now for something unrelated to this. But because he's been speaking out, they've had sights on him and they want to kind of shut him up. And I don't agree with all the stuff that he's doing or any of that. But the, the fact is that there's just so much more public attention on this Karen Reed case than there would have been had Turtle Boy not taken up this cause. And I think that... Um, I don't, I don't think that they're alleging so much of a conspiracy by the state as they are alleging a conspiracy by maybe some of the people who may have been in the house, you know, and if we're going to back the blue, let's back the blue, let's back John O'Keefe and, and let's try and find John O'Keefe's real killer. But I, I looked at the autopsy photos and, and they do not look to me to be like something that happened from a car. I mean, they look like dog scratches. The dog has disappeared. The basement carpet got ripped up. The house was sold. I mean, we, I could go on and on and on, but we don't have enough time for that. But it's that's yeah. my opinion. And am I going to get arrested for saying it on the air? You know, I mean, that's what we're getting to now. No, no, no. But what they, no. they took it one step further, though. They're pointing the finger at very specific people. And, yeah. and, they're, and I know they're doing, they're protesting, like, at their places of business. And there was some, again, there were people that were cited for that. I don't know. Yes, yeah, the doxing. No. That's a problem. But we're yeah. also seeing that in the Maya Kowalski case, the post-trial apocalypse of motions on the Maya Kowalski case, where they have docs juror number one, will single-handedly yeah. take down the jury system. Nobody is going to want to serve on a jury if their phones are going to have to be turned over and their communications, and now they're being dragged back into court to get you know be questioned by the judge. And now the defense. I was in the in the motion papers the other day. They they named five podcasters in their motion papers. They got their legal theories from Reddit. I mean, like it or not, this is where we're going with this. And it's it's not always a good thing when the defense well, the Murdoch jury is going to be brought in also, the Murdoch jury as well. Oh, that case, after she was just accused of plagiarizing that book, forget it. He's getting a new trial. See, you've got so many stories to cover on Court TV this year. And uh, Melanie, you and I got so many things to talk about on our podcast. It's going to be an interesting year. And you know what? I think uh, I agree with about half of what's been said and I disagree with other parts of it. And I, I know that I'll get on there? with Vinny sometimes and he'll just tell me that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of, although he does it very eloquently. But uh, you know, that's, that's the beauty of this too, is that I think our listeners out there are pretty smart people and they can put things together. And our job isn't to necessarily tell them how to think, but it's to just raise all the questions and then say, what do you think? Yeah, I, I definitely, I, and you know this, I never tell a guest what to say, ever, 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 ever. Because I, I would I, agree. I've been, guest, I've been a guest many, many times, right? And, you know, for decades, I've been appearing on different shows, and there's always that pre-interview. And then uh, there was a couple of networks that we, the pre-interview said, well, this is what you're going to be our and I'd be like, no, that's not what I'm going to be arguing. I'm I'm going to say this. If if that's not okay, then you know that's okay. I just won't do the hit. But you know they always like the back and forth, the back and forth. So you got to take this side, you take that side, and you don't give me what side. I'll <laughs> tell you how I see it. And and half the time they say, all right, we'll get the other guy to do the other thing. And I was like, because and but it's the same approach for my show. I don't tell anyone what to say. So um, I never know how it's going to end up. And I don't know what I'm going to agree with and what I'm not going to agree. And 
Um, I think the ultimate goal for my viewers is to, I want you to hear from smart people who have it, have a take on it, but we have no, I have no agenda except the truth. And I'll tell you what I think the truth is. And, and I'll tell you when I think someone's not telling the truth, uh, I'll tell, and I'll tell you my opinion of it, but I always want to hear another opinion and I've never blocked people because they disagree with me. Um, so I think that's our job is, is to, yeah. to have people thinking collectively. Mm -hmm. And I love it with, with the, with the viewers, because as we're covering a trial, um, I'm reading all these posts and you, you get a, sometimes, you know, in our own little like show teams and the way we're seeing a trial, we'll see this, but then I look on social media and I'm like, Oh, wait a minute. They're, they're looking at this. That's fascinating. Let's go over there and do and and that's how I get ideas for for the show and and angles and segments etc. Uh, and that's because people are thinking. That's what I love about our audiences. They're they're amazing. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and one thing that I would say about uh, coming on Court TV so much is what I've learned over time. It, and people don't get to see behind the scenes, but you never prep me with a direction you're going and you encourage me to challenge other guests or other guests to challenge me when we're coming up with things about criminal behavior or other kinds of things. And I think that's what makes it so energizing for me to come on because uh, Marina gives me a call and says, here's the topic. And I get on and it's like what we're doing tonight. It just is free flow and, to get through and see where, where the discussion <laughs> takes us. Well, there's two that you didn't mention, Vinny, which I think are going to be really interesting too, is the Ethan Crumbly parents trial. That's happening. I think this month, right? Michigan's the first, the first, one. Yeah, the first ever. one. Yeah. First time ever. They're going to try and hold parents liable for a school shooting. And also Adam Montgomery out of New Hampshire, which is a tragic case in February. Yeah. Well, I, I know the ending of the Adam Montgomery trial already, but yeah, uh, that shouldn't I, be long. Spoiler alert, I, I won't tell anybody what, it, what it's going to be, but yeah, that uh, the Adam Montgomery thing, I think for viewers and watchers of that trial, what will be, it's going to be heartbreaking, but um, there has to be some sense of justice for that little girl. There oh, yeah. just has to be, and what happened in the whole, and, and Adam Montgomery is the main villain, no doubt the main villain, but there were other safeguards in our system that didn't work that should have worked there and and, and that's very very frustrating um, at the end of my show every night i say don't forget to uh, please don't forget to hug the kids and, and i say that for parents obviously but um but for us collectively uh, whether we're the adults and you're you're just out somewhere and you see a child that may need help or may be in distress keep your eyes open for that but then like our system of justice also, like when when things break down in, in, inside some a child's home and the parents aren't the ones there that are able to take care of them, then our system and, and has to jump in. And that didn't happen in her case. I mean, she was missing for two years yeah. before, before anyone looked for her. Are you kidding me? Two years before yeah. someone looks for her? A missing child? There was no one in, in, in the circle of her life who was like, hey, where's Harmony? Where is she? Yeah. 
What what happened? What, I, I want to send her a birthday present or something. You know, what is that? And that goes back to the custody determination too. That Massachusetts judge gave him custody over the couple that had already adopted her half brother, who was a very loving couple, and they give custody to this you know ten time felon. It, heartbreaking. Now, I, I, I want to stop you because we're getting close to when I want to try to wrap. And I, I want to introduce you to Michelle Morris, who uh, is an attorney in Texas. Uh, if you get a minute, you all, you should go back and check out the playlist of a, a video I did here on Profiling Evil with Michelle called A Serial Killer Read Bedtime Stories to Me. And uh, <laughs> Counselor Morris here, uh, as a child, her father was a uh, a Texas Ranger, and one night he had taken a, a serial killer out to show him where he had buried a bunch of bodies, and he it was so late at night he felt bad that the guy was probably hungry, so he brought him home, fed him dinner. He was going to just feed him on the porch, but his wife wouldn't let him sit out on the porch. She made sure he came into the kitchen table, and she made sure that their little girl sat there and treated him with dignity. And he ended up reading her babe bedtime stories. <laughs> and, and she is just fantastic to talk with. But she has a question. Any thoughts from the three of you on D. Warner? That's not a case I'm familiar enough with to talk about. Vinny, you know anything about it? I don't know anything about it. I'm not. I'm going to look it up right now. See if I can find it. No, I was going to Google it real quick, too. And, and make sure you go and listen. about it. Sounds like one we should know about. Yeah. New one. And make sure everybody that you go and download that podcast. It's either on the uh, Profiling Evil Audio podcast or you can get the video where Michelle and I are talking and showing some pictures and other kinds of things. And as we get close to wrapping up, I uh, I planned on Vinny. I think you may remember uh, a few years ago you needed me on the show one night and I was out. Uh, with a dive team trying to find a kid who had been missing for 30 years and we were able to recover a car, but we never got the body Um, profiling evil after that. And we've never really talked much about it. We've mentioned it a few times, but we paid to uh, help the family declare this young man deceased. We helped them get a burial plot and a headstone and pay for a funeral And we brought the family all together and had a funeral. And the boy's name is Lloyd Reese. And uh, his sister wanted to get on tonight and just tell everybody that while he's never been recovered, she is so grateful for the true crime community that kind of rallied around her and continues to send her messages of love and support. And that she goes to the grave and we buried Lloyd next to his brother. We actually exhumed his brother from a different location and brought him and put him next to. So the two brothers were side by side and the family uh, just was expressing their appreciation. And they were really looking forward to being on, but she's stuck in traffic and can't get on. So I wanted to pass that on to you. But let's go back. D. Warner, thoughts? All right. So. This looks like I don't have any thoughts off the top of my head other than we will absolutely be tracking this on court TV because it looks like it's getting closer and closer to a trial now. And it's in Michigan and Michigan does permit cameras in the courtroom. So um, (laughs) be all over that one. I'm sending it to my trial tracking unit as we speak. Awesome. Um, Yeah. Um, 
Vinny, I'm going to give you the final thought because you always take it anyway when I'm on with you. But Melanie, any thoughts as we kind of wrap up the night and and, uh, say goodnight to everybody? You know, it's been a crazy year in the true crime world. We've had a lot of crazy trials this year, you know, between Murdoch and uh, so many. I mean, how many can we even uh, talk about? But it's been a crazy year. Uh, Thank God some of these are done, but Murdoch might not be. So we may come back and have to watch that trial again. But thanks for having me on. This is a great beginning of the year and happy new year to everyone. <laughs> it's fun to be with you. My dear friend, Always. Vinny, what are your thoughts? Well, first, I think we have to make this a tradition, like a new year's <laughs> tradition, right? It's uh, a great way to start the year, get, you know, kind of get the feel for what's going on. Um, I, you know, 2023 was a, was a, a amazing year at, at Court TV in, in terms of the network and, and the growth and, you know, we relaunched the network in 2019. So it's taken a few years, but we've got so much traction now. Um, and, and, and where we are right now is so different from the first time around with Court TV, where true crime is on the front page and is on the minds of so many people. And what makes it so great is that there are so many people talking about it. You know, uh, and and it starts, I think it really starts with the podcasters. It really does. That is the, I think, the foundation of the true crime community. So thank you to both of you uh, for for carrying the weight for us um, and keeping these cases on people's minds. And then when they get to trial, obviously, Court TV uh, will show them to the world. Um, But I think we're at a point where people um, can make a difference with the cold cases, with the manhunts and everything else, everyone's so connected now that I think it's going to get more and more difficult for people to get away with crimes. And hopefully that will ultimately have the impact of deterring some people from committing the crime. So that's really my hope for 2024 is that more cases get solved and more people get deterred. Well, Thanks a lot. And thank your team from me personally and to both of you. Thanks for taking time to be on tonight. You know, we quit doing choir practice a couple of years ago because we didn't know if people liked it or not, but they continued to ask. And uh, again, for those that don't know what choir practice is, you can look it up or you can go to the beginning of the video and you can hear me describe what it is and how it was created back in 1975. It's a really special time for cops at the end of every shift. And it's really special for me to have you both on. So uh, thanks so much from all of us at Profiling Evil, folks. Remember, you can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter. And uh, if you like audio podcasts, make sure you're checking out Profiling Evil podcasts on your favorite podcast platform. And from all of us, thanks so much. We'll see you soon at the next crime scene.
Hey folks, it's Mike from Profiling Evil. I've been studying criminal behavior for more than 40 years, and one of my favorite research tools is Truthfinder. It's online, and you're not going to believe the information stored there. So if you want to know more about that new neighbor, your babysitter, or your online date, give Truthfinder a try. I'm including a special link below with special discount pricing, but you got to click the link and enter Evil10 at checkout. Now, we're an affiliate, which means we get a small commission, but you can cancel at any time.